Well, welcome. Glad you're joining us today. If you're new, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. And this week, we are on week two of a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. You know, the Lord's Prayer is just 64 words long, but it's an incredibly powerful prayer. It's this model that Jesus gives us for us to learn how to pray. And so as we begin today, I want to invite you, if you're comfortable, if not, that's okay. But I want to invite you to pray with me the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and then we will uh, we'll begin talking about it. Here's how it goes. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive, have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Today, today we are going to start by looking at that open phrase, the, the opening phrase of that prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, it's come to my attention that not everyone appreciates the fine music that we call country music. And frankly, I'll be the first to admit that not every country music song is great, but there's a lot of good ones out there. Uh, and there's some ones that I'm not sure, I'm not sure this one I'm going to tell you about whether it falls in good or not, but, but it's funny. It's a, it's a song that uh, my wife Newell and I uh, hear sometimes, always makes us laugh. It's by a country artist named Toby Keith, and it's a, called I Want to Talk About Me. And in this song, he's singing to his wife or his girlfriend, and he's, he's telling her all the things that they always talk about. It's all the things that she's, uh, you know, interested in. He says, we talk about your work and your boss, who is a jerk. We, we talk about your friends and the places that you've been. We talk about the polish on your toes and the run in your hose. And he just kind of goes on like this. But when he comes to the chorus, then he goes like this. He says, you know, talking about you makes me smile. But every once in a while, he says, I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. I want to talk about number one, oh me, oh my. I like talking about you, 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 usually. But occasionally, I want to talk about me. I want to talk about me. Newell and I, when we hear that song, we always laugh because it's this song that points out the tendency for both of us to kind of be focused on our own world and on the things that we want to talk about. And, and sometimes, sometimes that's how our prayers can begin to sound. You know, this is one of the dangers of prayer is that prayer can become very selfish in its nature. If you're like me, you know, sometimes when it comes to prayer, I just launch right in with, I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. I want to talk about number one, oh me, oh my. I mean, it's like, God, I want to talk about this and that and this and that. And, and it's all about my world, about me, me, me. And, uh, and while those things are important and, and, and valuable, and there is a place in this prayer to talk about that. It's not the place where Jesus teaches us to begin. Instead, in the opening line of this prayer, he teaches us what our right place is and the right attitude that we should have and, and really who it is that we're talking to when we come to prayer. And it's not me. So let's, let's talk about it. Jesus begins this prayer with this word, our. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's easy to miss that word when we begin this prayer, and yet it's incredibly important. You, you know, when you pray, you may be all alone. You know, that's what Jesus instructs us to find this kind of place without interruptions, to, to go regularly and then pray. You, you might be all alone, but, but you're not alone in your prayers. Your prayers are joined with the prayers of believers around the globe. Uh, Nick Ripkin uh, writes a, a, an experience that he had in his book called The Insanity of God. 
Uh, he traveled the world speaking to people who experienced persecution for their faith in Jesus. And at one point, he flew deep into the heart of China. And when he arrived at the airport, he didn't even know who he was supposed to meet. But he went, began walking around the, the airport parking lot. And this guy kind of nodded him over. And, and he didn't quite know who it was. But, but they introduced themselves and they quietly got him in this van. And it was this church leaders of this underground church movement in China, a very large underground church movement. And they said, where we're going is 18 hours away. And so for the next 18 hours, you need to lie down in the back seat of the van. And that's what he did for the next 18 hours. He lay in the back seat of the van. He watched the, the, the buildings go by and the, 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 the traffic lights and the clouds. And for 18 hours, they traveled on highways and down roads until they came to this bumpy road far deep, deep in the interior of China. And finally, they said, you can get out. And when he got out, he stretched his legs. He found himself on a, on a farm with this sort of compound around it. And, and, and they, they brought him to this place where he met with 120 leaders of this massive underground church movement in China. And after they ate uh, supper, they asked him to begin to, to talk to them. And they asked him, is there other Christians in the world who suffer the kind of persecution that we do? And, and he began to tell them about Christians who had faithfully suffered under persecution in two Muslim countries. But he said that as he, as he shared with them, that their faces were just blank. They didn't respond. They didn't say anything. It was just cold and, and kind of hard. And, and after he'd shared a bunch of stuff, he just turned to his interpreter because he didn't speak Chinese. He, he turned to him and said, that's it. I'm done. I'm tired. I have nothing else to say. I, I'm going to go to bed now. And he went to bed a little discouraged to he woke up the next morning, 6 a.m., to the, the sound of, of crying and yelling. And he jumped out of bed, worried that the secret police had found them. But when he got outside and his eyes kind of adjusted, he realized there was no police around. But that these, these leaders of this church movement were sitting on the ground, lying on the ground all over this, this field. And they were, they, were, they were crying out. Some were yelling. And he was like a little worried. What is going on? And so he, 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 he looked around and he saw the interpreter. And he made a beeline to the interpreter. He said, what is going on? And the interpreter said, shh, shh, just be quiet. And he's like, yo, I don't speak any Chinese. I can't understand. He said, shh, just listen. And he took him by the arm and began to lead him among all of these, these men and women who were on the, on the ground crying out and yelling. And all he could hear was all this Chinese intermingled with these two words over and over, the names of those two nations, those Muslim nations that he had told them about. And he realized that they were in deep, deep prayer, anguish prayer for the believers in those nations because of the persecution that they faced. And, uh, and he talked to the interpreter who said, after you went to bed last night, the, the people of this movement who knew much persecution themselves vowed that they would get up an hour earlier every day and pray for an hour for the people in that nation until, until they, till those nations came to know Jesus. When you pray your prayers, wherever it is, when you're all by yourself and you're lifting your prayers, you need to know that your prayers mingle with the prayers of those in the underground church in China and in the Middle East. When you bow your head to pray and you lift your heart to God, your prayers join the prayers of millions of believers in South America that have recently come to faith, where the church is growing rapidly. When you, when you come before God in prayer, 
You have to remember that your prayers join the prayers of the person who just gave their life to follow Jesus and prayed for the very first time. And your prayers join the prayers of the person who has followed Jesus all their life and who daily is on their knees for their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. In fact, when you bow your head to pray, when, when you kneel before your God and Father to pray, your prayers join the prayers of the saints going back 2,000 years. They join the prayers of the likes of Augustine and Ambrose and Calvin and Luther and millions that have gone before you. You see, when we pray our Father, whether you pray it alone or if you're surrounded by hundreds of other people, Jesus teaches us that we begin our prayers by understanding that we are part of something much, much bigger than just ourselves. Your prayers are important. They matter deeply to God. But remember that it's not just about you. You know, in our Western culture, which is so individualized, we think my prayers are about me and what's happening in my world and what I want Jesus to do for me and what do you want him to do for this close circle of friends that I know. And that's good. There is a place for that in this prayer. But you have to understand that you are part of something so much bigger and your prayers are part of what God is doing in this world and throughout history. And so that's why Jesus begins, he teaches us to begin our prayer with this, our Father. Now the second word, of course, is the word Father. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And you know, when it comes to defining the word Father, I mean, there's a technical definition. I, I mean, there's the idea of paternity. A, a father is a person who is involved in making it possible for life to, to be conceived. And frankly, Nothing else is really necessary. I mean, you, you can technically be a father simply in that way. But that's not the full definition of what it means to be a father, right? I mean, the full definition of father, of being a father, includes the whole the idea of fatherhood. The, the idea of having this, this relationship that is filled with love and intimacy and confidence and trust between a father and his children. And when Jesus teaches us to address God as our Father, he's thinking of both of those. He's thinking of this idea of paternity, that all of life, every aspect of life, ultimately flows from our God and Father. But it's much, much more than that. He, he's speaking of this idea of fatherhood, that, that we have this privilege to enter into this, this deep, loving, meaningful, intimate relationship with God, which which is a revolutionary idea. We think of it now, but, but when Jesus first talked this way, it was utterly revolutionary. You see, in, in Jesus' world, in the Greco-Roman world, there were two main philosophies about life. One was the Stoic philosophy, the other was Epicureanism. And when it came to understanding God, the Stoics believed that, that the number one, the most essential attribute for God was what they called apatheia. Now, that's similar to our word in English, apathetic, but it's a little different. The, 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 the Greek idea of apathia was that the, 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 the essential inability to experience any feelings at all. It, it was an inability to do that. And what they argued was this, that God had to be this way. Because a person who could feel emotions, you could feel joy and laughter and anger and, and hatred. and a, a person who could feel those things could be affected by whoever could make them feel that way. And if God was going to be in control, he couldn't be affected or impacted by anyone. And therefore, therefore God was apathia. 
He was emotionless, passionless. Essentially, he was indifferent. In other words, nothing could move the heart of God. That, that was the, the stoic understanding of who God was. The Epicureans, on the other hand, they, they believed that the supreme quality in life was something that, that they called ataraxia, which meant complete calm, total serenity. And they argued that, that this was the highest value, therefore this is what God was, and that therefore he could not be involved in the things that are happening in the world. Because he would be so riled up by what was happening that he wouldn't be calm and he'd lose that forevermore. And so they argued, therefore, that God or, or the gods must be totally and completely detached from the world around them. They, they literally could watch and see what's going on, but they were utterly unaffected and unattached to it because they needed to keep the serenity in their life. They need to keep the kind of alm in their life, right? Those were the two main philosophies of the Greco-Roman world. But for the Jewish people, I mean, the Jewish people, they, they also had a, an understanding of God. Now, there is about 14 references to God as Father in the Old Testament. Uh, but that's 14 out of about a million words in the Hebrew Old Testament. And every single one of those references to God as Father is in the, in the context of God being the Father of the nation of Israel. Never in the context of his relationship to an individual. So, for example, even the great heroes of the faith, even Moses and Abraham and David, never referred to God. They would have never dreamed of referring to God as their father. Instead, the Old Testament focuses on the power and the majesty and the holiness of God. So, for instance, if you read the book of Job, Job experiences incredible suffering in his life and and for 37 chapters, he wrestles with God, with his friends around the suffering and what it means. And in chapter 38, God speaks. And God comes and he says, stand up, Job, because now I'm going to ask you some questions. And God begins to question Job. He says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Job, have you ever commanded the sun to rise in the morning? Job, do you know where the, the seas spring forth? Do you, Job, do you, do you comprehend the expanses of the earth? In essence, what God says to Job is this. He says, what right do you have to speak to me or, or, or to question me? And then when you read on, when you come to the book of Jeremiah, the, the prophet Jeremiah, one day the prophet is, is, is watching a potter make a, make a pot. And something goes wrong and the pot is the not the right shape. And so the potter simply mashes it down and, and begins again. And God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah. And he says this. He says, behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Can I not do with you as the potter has done to his workmanship? And there's this picture, this picture of God in his majesty and his holiness and his greatness. And it's a true picture and it's a right picture. But part of the reason Jesus came is to bring fullness to that picture, to help us understand fully who God is. That's the Old Testament view of God. Now, in our own day, I mean, there's people who have these other pictures of God. There's those who would identify themselves as agnostic, which really is just taking the, the stoic idea and the Epicurean idea and putting it together. If there's some sort of God out there. But, but he is doing his own thing. He is indifferent really to what's going on down here. And he's totally detached. Which I suppose is fine, but it's, it's rather useless. I mean, so what if that's who God is? That makes no difference in our life. And certainly not 
when we experience pain or hardship in our life. It's kind of a waste. Then there are others who, who, who create kind of a, a designer God. A, you know, generally when I talk to people about this, he's a, she, you know, they wouldn't say this, but he's kind of a, a flimsy, uh, a flimsy sort of pushover of God, kind of a mix of Santa Claus and a, and a doting grandmother, right? I mean, if you're on the nice list, if, you, if you've been good, you expect that God is like Santa Claus and he's going to give you gifts. He ought to reward you for being nice. And if you're on the naughty list, well, then, then God should be like a doting old grandmother who just sort of kind of a little naive pats you on the head. That's okay. You didn't mean it. You're good, right? The problem with that, though, is that that too is utterly useless when it comes to knowing how to live this life well. I mean, why bother? Because that God doesn't do much in your life either. Jesus, Jesus, when he comes, he reveals a radically different picture of who God is and what he's like. He's majestic and powerful and holy, just like the Old Testament reveals. But he's more than that. He is also our father. In fact, in places, he takes it a step further. He uses this word, Abba, Father. Abba meaning, it's an Aramaic expression, meaning like deep endearment and affection between a son or a daughter and their father. That's how he teaches us to address God. So if God is our father, that means several things. It means, first of all, that he cares deeply for us. You know, another place, Jesus says this. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And then again in Luke 12, 6, he says the similar thing. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And yet not one of them is forgotten before God. He says, look, a sparrow is so cheap you could get two for one. But if you're willing to buy four, they're so cheap they'll throw in the fifth one for free. I mean, they're, they're almost worthless. And yet he says, your father who is in heaven knows when every one of them falls to the ground. And in fact, uh, one commentator who understands sort of the Aramaic that Jesus spoke in that day, Jesus spoke in Aramaic, uh, would say that that expression, every time a sparrow falls to the ground, doesn't mean when it dies. It literally means when it, when it alights, when it, when it lands. In other words, you've seen sparrows hop here and there and here and there. He says, every time that happens, Jesus says, your father in heaven knows and he cares. And he's aware of what's going on. And Jesus says, if that's how much God cares for the sparrows that hop on the ground, that are utterly worthless, how much more does he care for you and for me? That's what it means that God is our father. Incredible care for our life. But then secondly, because God is our father, he's filled with incredible grace towards us. And again, to help us understand this, Jesus tells us a parable. He says, look, let me help you understand what God is like. He is like a father who has these two sons. And one son comes to him and says, hey, Father, give me half the inheritance. I want it now. I don't care. I'm going on my way. And that's what he does. He goes out. He spends it all. He, he wastes it on partying and prostitutes. And, and he ends up in trouble. He ends up with no place to, to sleep and, and, and so hungry that he's trying to eat the food that he has to feed the pigs. And the other son the other son stays home and he continues to work in his father's house. And the first son, the one who squandered away his inheritance, one day he says, look, I'm going to go home and I'll just beg to be a servant in my father's house. At least then I'll have a roof over my head and some food to eat. And so he begins to come back and Jesus says that while he is still far off, that the father sees him 
and comes running to him and throws his arms around him. And, and the son says, make me a servant. And the father's like, not a chance. You are always my son. You've always been. You always will be. Come. And he throws a big party for him and, and, and he welcomes him home. And Jesus says, this is, this is what our father is like. That, this is who we pray to. We pray to one who is so filled with grace. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how big you've screwed up in your life. The fact of the matter is he is filled with grace and you are always welcome in his presence. Always. It's the second thing. But the third thing, and at the same time, is the fact that because God is our father, it implies that we are his children who need to be obedient to him. Right? I mean, a good father loves his children deeply. He cares for them. He's filled with grace towards them. But a good father also expects that his children will be obedient to him. Why? Because he knows about life. He understands that the world is a dangerous place. He, he knows that there is a, a good way to live so that you thrive in this life and a poor way to live that leads to disaster. And so he says to his children, you must be obedient to me because this is for your benefit. It, it, is, it is a gift. It is love for the father to expect his children to be obedient. Now that's the picture that, that Jesus gives us of who God is. It is radically different than anything in his world at that day. And frankly, than in our world in this day. It is about this, this relationship that we have with God that is intimate and deep and loving. It's about how, it is about remembering how close God is to us. That's, that's what Jesus wants us to remember when we begin our prayer, how close God is to us. But then the next phrase is this, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, when we think about heaven, at least when I do, probably you too, we think of someplace in outer space, like, you know, God is in heaven out there somewhere. But that's actually not a proper understanding of what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, the little grammar again, forgive the grammar, but it's helpful to understand what Jesus is saying. When, when Jesus speaks of heaven, he uses the Greek word Uranus, uh, which is the name of one of our planets, right? That talks about heaven. But in this prayer, he uses that word not in the singular, but in the plural. In other words, literally the prayer says, our father, the one, our father, the one in the heavens. And this word in Greek has multiple meanings. Heaven can mean outer space. It can also mean the sky. It can also mean the air that we breathe. And the first meaning when we pray our Father in heaven is this, our Father that is all around me. Our Father that is present with me wherever I am. Uh, my Father, who, our Father who is, who is closer than the air that I breathe. Our Father who will never ever leave me. That, that's, that's the first idea that, that this idea of our Father in heaven has. But at the same time, at the same time, and with the same phrase, Jesus is reminding us that God is also way beyond our world. The early church father, he wrote in the first couple hundred years of, of, the, of the church, his name is Oregon. Uh, he writes this. When we hear that the father of the saints is in heaven, we're not to imagine that he is circumscribed to a material form and that it is as such that he dwells in heaven. This would make God lesser than the heavens, for they would claim him and that which contains is always greater than what is contained. But, with, but the ineffable 
sorry, but the ineffable vastness of God's divinity requires that we affirm that all things are in him and that he sustains all of them. In other words, what he is saying is this. Don't think that God is somehow, you know, in heaven like you and I are in a house. That the house is somehow larger than, than God. No, no, what he's saying is that God is greater than anything, than even the heavens. So clearly, when Jesus says to pray that our Father in heaven, he doesn't mean sort of in some place in outer space. Rather, what he refers to is not only is he right here with us, but that he is much greater, much vaster than anything we could possibly think or imagine, than, than we could possibly wrap our head around. In contrast, when we talk about earth, when the Bible talks about earth, it means this earth, but it also means anything that we can explore or discover, both on earth or in the heavens. But when he's talking about heaven here, he's talking about a mystery, the, the mystery of who God is that is, is beyond our understanding, beyond our, our expressions, beyond even our imagination. Let me try and I hope I'm making this clear. Let me let me give you an example. 1957, the Soviets launched the first human-made satellite called Sputnik into outer space. And uh, all the newscasters began to declare that that humankind had finally begun the conquest of, of space. The very next day uh, in one of his classes, Richard Niebuhr, a famous theologian, he was a professor at the time, uh, he, he told this story. He said this, once upon a time, there was this massive, this great ship uh, out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in the midst of these massive waves. And the ship was filled with tons and tons of potatoes. And in one of those potatoes was a worm that on that day finally managed to eat its way through that potato and break out of the skin. And he looked around. And then in his excitement, he turned back around and went back down into the center of the potato and declared to his other worms and friends that were there, hey, we have begun the conquest of outer space. You see, since that day in 1957, we've come a long way in, in understanding space and in exploring it. And what we've learned is not that we are getting a grasp on it, that it is even bigger and bigger than we could possibly begin to, to get our, our mind around, our, our, our understanding around. And, and you see, we understand enough about it. We understand about time and space that we can explore it and partly begin to understand it, but there's stuff about it that's just, it's just a mystery to us. It's just hard for us to, to wrap our hands, our, our mind around. Like, for instance, the idea that space is endless, that it goes on and on, that it never ends, that it goes on for infinity can't quite wrap our head around that. But at the same time, if we came to the conclusion that space ended, we'd have troubles wrapping our head around that. Well, if it ends, what's, what's after that? And the same thing with time. We can't quite comprehend that time has always been. That before everything, there was still more time and more before that. But we also have troubles wrapping our head around the idea that time could come to an end. See, there's some things that are just... They're just kind of bigger than our brains can kind of wrap their heads around. And, and, and there's this, this mystery to it. And, and that's the other part of what Jesus is getting at when he says that we need to pray to our Father who is in heaven. 
God is so much greater than, than any human description and understanding. We understand a great deal about God, but he is so much greater. And the mystery around who he is and what he is all about is more than our minds can conceive. He is the inescapable one, the, the one who is the profound mystery. And, and yet, and yet he loves us as a father. So even as we begin our prayer by remembering that God is so close, that he is closer than the air that we breathe. In the next breath, we also remember that he is so great, that he is so ineffable, so beyond description that we can hardly comprehend how big and how amazing he is. We have to remember the matchless majesty, glory, and the greatness of God. That is, we remember the, the transcendence of who God is. So Jesus says, when you begin to pray, don't forget who you're talking to. Don't forget the kind of conversation that you've entered into. And, and, then, and then he comes to the first petition, the first request that we have to God, which is this, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is a word that we don't really use in English very much anymore. In fact, almost nowhere. But unfortunately, there isn't another good English word that has kind of come to, to replace it. So we just needed to find it. It, it. it literally means to, to make something sacred or set apart, to make something holy. So for instance, if you read in the Genesis chapter 2, it says that God took the Sabbath day, the seventh day, and he set it apart and he hallowed it. He, he made it holy. In fact, all through the Old Testament, you'll read these places where uh, certain things were hallowed. There was a, people that were set apart, they were made holy or the utensils in the temple were set apart and made holy. Or, or the temple itself was set apart and made holy. It's, it's the act of making something holy or, or separate. So now Jesus uses this language to refer to God's name. Now, first of all, let's talk about God's name for a minute. When we talk about God's name, it, it just, it's a shorthand for representing all that God is. His personality, his character, his, his nature. So when we talk about God's name, when we talk about hallowing God's name, it's like hallowing God. So, so Jesus says that we are to pray that God's name should be made holy. His character should be made holy. The problem is this. It's already holy. There is no way that God can be made more holy. There's no way he can be made more set apart. There's no, more, no way that he can be more different than us already. So what is Jesus saying here? What does he mean? Well, to help us understand that, there's, a, there's another place in the Bible that uses this same expression. It's the Apostle Peter. And he uses it in reference to Jesus. And here's what he writes. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Now that, that word revere, that's the same word that, that Jesus uses. It's the word translated in the, in the Lord's prayer as hallowed. So to hallow God's name is to revere it, to, 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 to honor it. And the question is, you know, what, what does that look like? How, how do we do that? Obviously, uh, part of that is what we do through worship. When we gather together as God's people, we lift our voices and worship Him, we revere and we honor His name. But, but primary, I mean, throughout history, the, the primary way, going all the way back through church history, that this passage has been interpreted is not in the act of worship in, through singing. Rather, it's through the act of worship in how we 
live our lives. You know, the, the Apostle Paul references this in his letter to the Romans. He kind of gives the negative view of it. He says, look, if you say with your lips, I worship God, but then you don't live it out. You, you don't act the way that God calls you to act. He says, the result is that you actually cause people to blaspheme God. Here's what he says, Romans 2.24. The Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. In other words, if we don't live out our faith, if we don't live the way that Jesus calls us to, then instead of the people in the culture around us honoring and revering the name of God, we cause the opposite to happen. We cause people to blaspheme his name. See, we live in this culture like the early church did that was pretty much pagan. The, the people, the vast majority of the people in that culture didn't believe in God the Father. And the same is true in our culture. And, and that means that when they saw a person, when they saw a Christian that wasn't acting like a Christian, they didn't say to themselves, huh, that person isn't being a very good Christian. It's not what they would say. Rather, they would look at that person and say, oh, that's what Christianity does to a person. They don't blame the person. They blame Christianity. Now, is that fair? No. Is that what happens? Yes, absolutely. All of the time. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a candle and put it, or a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Then he says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father, that they might hallow the name of your Father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus means when he talks about God's name being hallowed. The, the early Christians, the, the early Christians were so strong on this idea because they lived in this pagan culture. And the only way, the only way that people would come to see and know who God really was, was by watching the lifestyle and the way that the followers of Jesus lived. And it was only when they lived lives of such beauty and goodness and truth that others began to say, huh, I think I want that in my life. You see, if we're no different than the people around us who don't know Jesus, I mean, if we're crushed by sorrow in the same way that they are, if we're just as frustrated and unsatisfied with life as they are, if we are just as worried and anxious as they are, if, if we, you know, are just as, you know, if, if we are selfish and self-centered and, and if we measure everything in our world by how much we have, like the world around us does, then they look at us and say, well, why on earth would I bother following your Jesus, your God? It's no different, right? Nietzsche, the famous German pagan philosopher who hated Christians, made this challenge. He said, he said this, show me that you have been redeemed and then I'll believe in your Redeemer. You have to live the life that Jesus calls us to. See, here's how Jesus teaches us to start our prayers after we remember that we're part of something much, much bigger than just ourselves. And after we remember that God is our, our Father, that He is as close to us as the air we breathe. And after we remember that He is so vast and so great that we could never fully understand and comprehend Him. The very first petition then that we should present to God is this one. God, change me. 
God, make me more like Jesus. God, help me to live in a way that, that honors you. Grant me courage and wisdom and strength and perseverance to live the kind of life that you call me to live. Help me to be obedient so that when I live my life today, even though it's far from perfect, but as I live my life today in my workplace, in my school, among my neighborhood, my neighbors, uh, with my family, may people see my life and may they give glory to God. May they honor God's name. May they be drawn to who he is. That's what Jesus means when he teaches us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You remember that you're God's representative in this world and that people honor or they blaspheme his name in large part based on how they see you living your life. This is how Jesus teaches us to begin our prayers. To begin by orienting ourselves in a right way. To come with the right attitude when we come to prayer. To remember who God is what he's like, to remember that we're part of what he is doing in this world. And then to begin to, to seek him to work in our life. So when you pray this week, I, you know, last week I, I challenge you, I encourage you to find that what Jesus kind of refers to as this secret place, this closet, this, this place where you can go and be uninterrupted when I, I hope that you did that. If not, I just encourage you find that place, build that rhythm into your life. But when you go, if it's like four minutes or five or, or 10 minutes, however long you choose to have that kind of uninterrupted prayer, I want you to start your prayers by remembering I'm part of something much bigger. It's not just about me. And then by remembering how deeply God loves you and how great he is. And then the first request this week, the first request out of your mouth when you pray should be God, Help me to become more like Jesus. In fact, I want to challenge you to think, what area do you want to ask God to work in your life? I mean, say, God, please help me to be more patient in my life. Or God, help me to love my spouse more. Or help me to respect my boss more deeply. Or, or give me the courage, God, to serve somebody in need this week. Or, or whatever it is you ask God, you say, God, where is it that you want me to grow so that my life hallows your name? I want to invite you, pray that this week as you gather or as you, as you go to pray so that God's name will be hallowed. Would you bow your head with me right now? Let's, let's pray. Our Father, our Father, God, we, we pray together corporately. God, our prayers mingle with the prayers of, of the saints around the world today. And, and God, we come to you as a God who loves us so deeply, who is so close and yet, God, we acknowledge again your greatness, your majesty, that you are so far above us. And God, as we come today, God, our prayer is that you would be honored in our life. God, that our lives, how we live, would hallow your name. Not because we're perfect, not because we're self-righteous or so holy or better than our, not, not that in any way. But Father, out of a humble understanding that we're far from perfect, but that you're at work in our life and that we want to be obedient to you. Oh God, would you help us to live lives worthy of the calling of Jesus on our lives? Would you help us to live our lives 
before you so the world around us would say, that's a beautiful life. Clearly God is involved and I want to know him. God, that your name would be hallowed. This is our prayer, God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.